Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. Just after 4 a.m. on November 13, 2022, four University of Idaho students were viciously stabbed to death in an off-campus house. The killings would shake the small blue-collar college town of Moscow, Idaho, dominate mainstream news coverage, and become a social media obsession, drawing millions of clicks and views. While a reticent Moscow police department, the FBI, and the Idaho State Police search for the killer, unending conjecture and countless theories blazed online, in chat rooms and platforms, from Reddit and YouTube to Facebook and TikTok. For more than a month, the clash of armchair investigators and law enforcement professionals raged until a suspect, a 28-year-old PhD candidate studying criminology, was arrested at his family home 2,500 miles away in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania on the day before New Year's Eve. While Idaho Slept is a thought-provoking literary chronicle of a small-town murder investigation blistering beneath the unceasing light of international interest as traditional investigators, citizen sleuths, and the true crime media acted, sometimes together, often in conflict, to uncover the truth. As J. Reuben Appleman brings the terrible crime into focus, he humanizes the four victims, examining the richness of their lives, dissects the mind and motivations of their presumed killer, and explores the world of northern Idaho, a rugged, deeply conservative stronghold steeped in Christian values and American patriotism. Going deep inside the case, Appleman addresses a crucial question. With so many millions of citizens armed by access and hungry to take part in a true crime hunt of their own, has the nature of homicide investigations permanently changed? Rising above the sensational, while Idaho slept, illuminates the intrinsic connection between today's media, citizen sleuths, our societal mania for murder tales, and an important public's insatiable appetite 
for spectacle as never before. Running beneath, the pulse of the story is a heartbreaking narrative of the people we love, the dreams we all share, and the uncertain time left for sharing them. The book that we're featuring this evening is While Idaho Slept, The Hunt for Answers in the Murders of Four College Students, with my special guest, journalist and author, Jay Rubin Appleman. Welcome back to the program, and thank you very much for this interview, Jay Rubin Appleman. Thanks, brother. It's good to good to talk to you again. Thank you very much for this interview, and congratulations on this new book, uh, While Idaho Slept. Yeah, it's the kind of thing, I mean, I appreciate the sentiment, the congratulations. It's the kind of thing I don't generally feel comfortable accepting. You know, it's it's like four people had to die for this book to to come into play. And I'm just doing my best to chronicle the story that I can chronicle. I'm happy to be the person to, who gets to do it. I think of it as a privilege, and but I appreciate your sentiment. Yeah, but I'm glad the book is getting out. I'm glad that people are going to be able to read it. I'm glad that the audience that has been following this case will have something more whole to to grasp onto and, and they'll get to meet the victims in a better way than they've had in little blips and blurbs across the mainstream media for the last 10 months or so. This will be a, a richer, more compassionate, more full story of, I think, of what occurred and and who these people were. And I think that's important. So... Yeah, I appreciate your sentiment also. Thank you so much. It's a real, I know it's cliche, but you've honored the victims in this book remarkably and admirably. So let's get right to this uh, incredible tale. You take us to Moscow, Idaho, as a college town most of the year, and you say it's about half the population when it isn't in session. Tell us a little bit more about Moscow, Idaho. Moscow is uh, a really unique, really, really special place in North Idaho. That uh, North Idaho in general is a place that most people in the country never get to. It's known for a few things, some good, some bad. It's known for some of its uh, religious zealotry or, or some of its history with white supremacy. But those are things that really are small things in that area. What North Idaho is mostly about is sort of spiritual, faithful, heartfelt people who work hard and love each other and take care of each other. And the landscape is a beautiful landscape that is the stuff that Hollywood draws from in its Western films, things like that. I am familiar with Moscow, Idaho on on multiple levels lived in Idaho for 25 years. I've been working as a private investigator for a decade, and many of my cases have brought me up to North Idaho, Moscow area, Lewiston, which is nearby, places like that. And I've worked up there many times. I have a child who went to the University of Idaho, graduated from there just a few years before these victims were slain. And having visited during those school years, I can say that during the, the school session, the University of Idaho session, it's a thriving sort of bustling little village that is really rich culturally, where old school Idahoans who've lived there for maybe four or five generations in that area mingle very freely with the liberals who, who come to school there. Sometimes there's a large LGBTQ population. There's a large sort of hipster gym rat population, as I call them, people drinking fancy coffees and stuff. But they're sitting next, right next to the, the old cowboys who sort of landed there four generations ago, or I should say the ancestors of the old cowboys. 
And it's a very interesting dynamic up there. When, when school is out of session, which is when I've done most of my PI work up there in the summers, it's a very, very sleepy sort of hamlet of a place that is really uniquely comfortable feeling for one of those small places. It doesn't have that sort of rough edge that a lot of really small places have. Even in the summer when it's sleepy and there's only you know 12 or 15,000 people there. In some of those small towns that you go to, especially in the West, there's the air of coldness that was sort of bred into social interactions, you know, but not in Moscow. Moscow's a very friendly place. And I ended up writing this story, not because I was chasing a true crime du jour or something like that. That is not how I work. I write about things that matter to me, cases that somehow touch me. The first one in the kill jar, I wrote about those murders because they happened virtually in my backyard in de- outside of Detroit when I was growing up. Yes. And that case affected me deeply on a sort of spiritual and psychological level. And same now with the University of Idaho murders. I mean, it's not just my personal connection to the place, but where I live in Boise, Idaho, five hours south, there are hundreds of people that I know who have personal connections to either the victims or the, or the surviving two or to Moscow in general, or the University of Idaho. You can't walk around where I live and not know somebody who went to school there or knew one of the victims or whose family friends are in contact with one of the survivors. I mean, it's just, it's a very palpable in the air sort of case here. And and so when Harper Collins chose me to, to do this book, I mean, that, that was really why, because of my personal connection to the state, my personal connection to the community. And things like that. So, so I know that area very well, very tied to that area through multiple tentacles, so to speak. And it's a, it's a beautiful place. Let's get, before we talk about November 12th, 2022, let's introduce first some of the, one of the four victims, and that's Kaylee Gonsalves. And she has a roommate named Maddie Morgan, but let's first talk about Kaylee Gonsalves and uh, her background. Yeah. You mentioned Maddie as well. Kaylee Gonsalves, is, it's hard to talk about Kaylee Gonsalves without talking about Maddie Mogan. But Kaylee, she grew up in North Idaho with a really large family, parents who took great interest in her upbringing, Steve and Christy, and very actively involved in, in Kaylee's life. Kaylee was sort of the, I wouldn't say the troublemaker, but the, the spunky one of the group and always a jokester, always pulling pranks kind of a life of the party type and always having fun, always smiling, kind of in in control of her situation. You can see that in in childhood. You can also see that as an adult when she's on police body cam later, we can talk about that. But she, when police showed up to their college house for a noise complaint, you can tell that Kaylee was somebody who could have been running your business or could have been, you know, she was definitely somebody who was the face of wherever she was. You know, she could take charge of a situation. She could take charge of herself. She could take charge of, like I say, you could see she was going to be the face of a business someday or something like that. A big personality, very charismatic, very well-spoken. And her family was not what people think of when they think of North Idaho. When they're not from the area, they think of, oh, it's like lower income or they say people from out of, out of state, people, especially on the East and West Coast, we think of blue collar necessarily one of the requirements is sort of like a poorer, uneducated, Mm -hmm. things like that. She has a very whip smart family and very well to do for that area. You know, they live on a a beautiful house on a nice plot of land and her family for all, all that 
everything we can find it, it really took care of her. She was she came from a very privileged but hardworking scenario. I could say that. And she was right about to graduate. In fact, she had already started moving out of the house and had what what I could tell um, from all reports that she had only come back to uh, spend the weekend with her roommates and show them a new vehicle she had purchased. And one of those roommates, Matt and Mogan, was Kaylee's best friend since very early on in early early school years. I mean, they were stuck together at the hip, so to speak, and and always doing everything with each other. Kaylee's family took Maddie Mogan on all their their big trips that they would take to overseas or to cross the oceans, I should say, and um, just big big adventures that the family, Kaylee's family, dragged Maddie on, and it was a friendship that looked from the outside. If you were one of the kids who didn't get all that stuff, like the big house and the adventures with family and the close-knit family and the love between best friends and all that, you really noticed Kaylee and Maddie as something that was admirable and that you would have loved to have in your, in your own life. Let's talk about now Zana Kernodal and Ethan Chapin. Yeah, the really interesting couple. Ethan came from also a very sort of, I would say, privileged background, at least financially and family roots, a very tight family. He was a triplet, a huge guy, 6'4", something like that, and great athlete, the traditional floppy hair of a college kid, big smile on his face, dimples, handsome as all get out, and, you know, had all the benefits of a really solid upbringing. I say in the book that they, they looked like, the family looked like they were out of an Eddie Bauer catalog, you know, and, and to a lot of people, that means everything that appears Ethan really had, which was a good amount of family income, great support at home, just the confidence of somebody who grew up with a lot. You know, he had a ton of confidence and carried a room with him, so to speak, and knew how to work the room. And and it's very interesting that he met up with Zana Kernodal, who came from a somewhat opposite environment. Her mother was in and out of brief incarcerations because of drug issues. And that's a very sad thing. I'm not, I'm not speaking disparagingly at all when I say that, but it's very clear that, that her mother had many, many, and continues to have many, many troubles with based on her addictions. And her father uh, had a rough time in the beginning of Santa's childhood, but really is not that guy anymore. Is really just a brilliant, beautiful, seems to be a, a beautiful human being hardworking in the construction trades and built his own sort of contracting business. And Zana did not live in poverty, but Zana lived with the sort of emotional trauma and psychological trauma, one can assume, of having her birth mother have all of these complications in their life and in her life and lived in the same area. It's, it's, not, it's not as if Zana's mother was, was unseen. I mean, she was around in that area and was in, in a lot of suffering through a lot of trauma and turmoil in, in, based on her addictions. And, and that's what Xana came from, is, is that history. And it's so interesting. It appears that when Xana and Ethan began dating, Xana entered a world of a big family, big privilege, and she tiptoed through it, so to speak. You know, it seems like the way any of us would who didn't grow up with that and are sort of guests in that world. It's it's an experience that is rich and some sometimes can be overwhelming and sometimes beautiful. And it seemed like between the two of them had big dreams together and that they had great, great big love for each other. And they appeared from what everybody says to have been a really beautiful, warm, loving couple. And, and it seems to be happenstance. We won't know this until after the trial, but 
seems to be happenstance that Ethan was there that night. Based on what we know, the slayings of these students, the, the suspect appears to have been somebody who would have been targeting women, not men. So Ethan was not a resident of that house at King Road where the other roommates were. He was a visitor staying the night with, Zan- with Zana that night. Before we get to November 12th, 2022, and first with uh, Kaylee Gonzalez and, and Maddie Mogan, what they were doing that night, just tell us briefly about the layout of the 1122 King Road house, this six-unit house. Tell us about the security and just the layout of this building itself. That's a great place to start because it's such a strange house for most people. It's got three levels, basement, a first floor, and a second floor, which is not unusual, but it's built against kind of like a a slope. So the entryway, there's an entryway off a large parking area in front. The parking area in front could fit, if you had to squeeze them in, it could fit a dozen cars. It, It naturally fit six or seven, but you pull up to the house in this big parking way and there's there's the front door. Well, the front door really is unique because you walk in the front, but you have to go up to get to the kitchen. So I forget what they call that kind of house right now, but the basically the front door opens into what would normally be considered the basement of most houses. And that's apparent when you look at the house from the backside, where what appears to be the first floor is really the second. If you're only looking at it from the rear, you only see two floors. You can tell that there's a third, but you only really are in contact with two floors. If you're only looking at it from the front, you see all three floors. And so it's a really unique situation in that way. Both floors in the back have points of egress. There's a sliding door. You kind of walk up to the backside. If you were going around the back, you would walk up a little slope. You would swing around and you'd see a sliding glass door that leads into the main living quarters. There's another slider on the second floor, which which is has theoretically a point of egress, but there's no way down from it. It's just on a little balcony. So theoretically, you could climb up to that porch or balcony and get through the slider on the very top floor, which is actually, I said the second floor, but it's actually the second from the back when you're looking at it from the back, but it's technically it's the third floor. Anyway, from the front, you walk in and it's, it's an unusual space. You walk in and there, there are bedrooms to the left and right. And there's like a whole little hall kind of stairwell that takes you up to the main living quarters. And then there's another weird kind of misplaced stairwell kind of thing off to the side because there was an addition at some point to the house. And and it's not exactly, it doesn't appear that it would be entirely to code in new construction or anything like that, but it was maybe grandfathered in through certain clauses or whatever. But, But there's a weird stairwell and it gets to the top floor. And on the top floor, is where Maddie, which which is technically the third floor, which is where Maddie and Kaylee had separate bedrooms. And on the second floor is the kitchen and living area. And to one side of that area was Zana Cronodal's bedroom. And, and to the other side of that area on the night of the murders was where Dylan Mortensen was sleeping. She is surviving victim, survivor survivor, but I call her a surviving victim because she's still suffering through the horrors of this. And then on the bottom, on the bottom was Bethany Funk, who was also a survivor of, of these crimes. But there are two ways of looking at the house. I want to state this again, because if you're looking at it from the front, you see three floors. If you are looking at it from the back through a small, either from immediately from the back or through a small, small grove of woods, 
to an area above that woods where, where cars to a nearby apartment complex can sometimes park, you would be looking down through the woods to the rear facing two stories. On the bottom would be the, a slider that is commonly used by the people who visited that house to get into the house. And on the top would be a slider that went to Kaylee Gonsalves' bedroom. And there's no access to the top unless you climb, but there is access to the second, again, through that slider that was commonly used in knowing these students and their peers, likely often unlocked because that's the way sliders are in these college houses oftentimes because people come and go all the time. And the front door had a keypad. So if you didn't have the key code or you didn't feel like typing in the key code or whatever, you could go around to the climb up the little slope from the front and open that slider on the second floor. And that's what, what it appears a lot of people did. Let's use this as an opportunity to stop for a second to hear these messages. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, Jay, let's get to November 12th, 2022. Kaylee Gonsalves and Maddie Mogan are, are out at the nearby watering hole called the Corner Club in downtown Moscow, Idaho. And so tell us who they're with and just how the evening goes and when they return to King Road that night. Yeah. Kaylee and Maddie are out drinking at the little bar that you mentioned. It's a common watering hole for Greek students, meaning fraternity and, and sorority members and, and others. I mean, I went to the corner club and it's full of just regular day drinkers and whoever during the day, but at night it was a very collegiate place. And they're there with some friends. I won't name everybody that they're there with, but I will say one thing one person who they were there with, a guy who I'll just call Jack. They were there with Jack Showalter as well. And he's important because he later gets blamed for these crimes. And it's a horrible thing because he had nothing to do with them. I'm like, I mentioned that because of the media presence mm. that swarmed him, dogpiled onto him, the social media mobs and, and everything. And this poor kid and his family were living in fear for quite a time after these murders. I have to drop him into this story for a second in case you get back to that later and we can talk about him. But they were out drinking. Right. They leave, Kaylee and Maddie leave with Jack to Walter and they go to the grub truck, which is a local food truck. They're, they're seen walking that night to the grub truck. They're seen on exterior security camera footage from another business. They're talking. We can hear that we can hear what they're saying. They're talking about some common things that two college girls would be talking about. And they then show up in live Twitch feed from the grub truck, who, whose owner has a Twitch stream that shows video of what's going on at the grub truck. A cool idea to have have live footage of your food truck. And because of that, we know we know what their actions were at the grub truck. They looked they appeared to be intoxicated. And by the way, they were moving and acting and talking and stuff. And then they leave Jack Showalter behind and they take a ride share back home. And that ride share driver is the last person in, in the sort of public to have seen Kaylee and Maddie alive. They were seen at the grub truck. They were, they were hanging out with Jack. Then the ride share driver takes them home. 
And uh, that rideshare driver and Jack Showalter have been cleared of any involvement in these crimes. So at first they weren't though, they, people were looking at Jack and they were looking at the rideshare driver and they were looking at whoever they could look at. And the police tained alibis and cleared all these people. But those were the last moments of Kaylee and Maddie's life outside of that King Road residence. Same with, similarly, if, if I may, Zana and Ethan were out that night. They were at a fraternity party at Ethan's fraternity, Sigma Chi, just down the road from the King Road residence. And I mean, not just, not on the same street, but as the crow flies, a few hundred, several hundred yards and that's it. But in fact, from the bluff, if you stood high enough on the bluff behind the King Road residence where these murders occurred, you could see the Sigma Chi fraternity house. So it's within eye shot through some house, through some other houses and things like that. But they were out that night as well. Just the two of them hanging out with some friends, but they weren't out drinking at bars or anything like that. They came back to the residence around the same time as Kaylee and Maddie, which was sometime after two o'clock, let's say, just for the purposes of this narrative here in this interview. But it's roughly around that time period. And the other roommates were home. Bethany and, and Dylan were home trying to get some sleep as well, uh, eventually. And um, the only thing we really know about the activities of that night after, after everybody arrives home is that we know that Zana Kernodal was on TikTok briefly or appeared to be on TikTok briefly. She may have just had the app open. And so it maybe showed that she was on TikTok, but she might have, you can leave your Instagram app open and it, and it shows people that you're on it. But but you're not really paying attention to it. We know that she ordered food, like a DoorDash situation, and she ordered food to the house. Food arrives around 4 a.m. So they were up kind of late. We know that Dylan Mortensen, who was sleeping in the, trying to sleep on the second floor, was awakened by some of this, them coming home, Kaylee and Maddie upstairs making a little bit of noise, it seemed like. You know, so there was early morning hours when most people in the world are asleep, but these are college kids several of whom had been out drinking. There were plenty of college nights of my own where I, I didn't go to bed till 4 or 4.30. That's a normal thing if you don't come home from a bar until 2.30 or so. And that's what was going on in this house. They were not having any kind of boisterous partying going on. They were settling in for the night, but it was very late. It was four in the morning by the time people were really settling down. You talked about Dylan and also Bethany Funk. Of course, this is found out later, but at the time, they had no reason to be suspicious of the sounds that they heard. Tell us about the sounds they thought they heard that night and when. Well, we do not know at this point anything about what Bethany heard because the police have not released it. And all we can assume based on that is that she heard nothing and slept through it. Right. That is the narrative that has been consistent across all reporting. Anybody who has looked into what Bethany was up to at the moment of the murders, everybody who has looked into that has said, we can only guess that she was sleeping because that's all we found out is she slept through it, right? And, and that appears to be what the police documents indicate, and as well as all reporting. Dylan Mortensen, on the other hand, heard several things. She was trying to get to bed. And this is all based on police documentation and other verification uh, from different sources that had reported on the case early, things like that, who had spoken to police or whatnot. Right. Dylan Mortensen was trying to get to bed. She heard what appeared to be, what sounded like Kaylee and Kaylee's dog sort of roughhousing a little bit. Murphy is his name. I was forgetting the dog's name briefly, which, which was heartbreaking to me because I love dogs. Um, <laughs> Kaylee was, it sounded like she was goofing off with with Murphy and, and Maddie. And 
Dylan yelled upstairs like, hey, basically, can you guys keep it down? She didn't get any response. She heard barking from Murphy. And then she tried to go back to sleep. Shortly thereafter, she heard some more sort of, I would say uncertain, not unfamiliar, like, you know, there's, there's scuffling or there's something's going on or whatever. But, you know, in a college house, you don't think much about that stuff. You just think people are making noise and you wish you wish they'd shut up. So she heard some kind of more of that. And then she heard she heard what appears to have been Kaylee saying someone's here. And it and she also then shortly after heard from and that was all from upstairs from her. And then down the hall from her where Zanna and Ethan stayed shortly after she heard some version of someone crying which she thought was, she assumed was Xana crying. And then she heard some version of, it's okay, I'm going to help you, coming from a male voice. Now, she did not say, it does not say in the police documents that she heard Ethan say it, but just a male voice. But she did not say it wasn't Ethan either. She basically, from what we can gather from the police documents, from the investigative documents, that she she was not specific in those documents or... The police intentionally left that out of their documents, whether or not she was specific. But that doesn't seem to be the case. And the police have no reason to have left that out intentionally. But that's very interesting because she heard somebody say some version of, it's okay, I'm going to help you. And then shortly after that, she becomes slightly concerned, not necessarily about any kind of violent crime occurring, but she can't sleep. There's weird things that she's hearing. She doesn't know what's going on. She opens her bedroom door and she looks out the door and she sees, well, she had already previously looked out the door, saw nothing. She does it again and she sees a man dressed in black with a covering over his face, a black covering over his face, walking toward her. But toward her also happens to be the route to exit the house. And, you know, he's not walking into her room, so to speak. He's walking in the direction toward her. And he passes her and he goes out the slider. And this is on the second floor. And something unusual occurs. She she doesn't know if, we we don't know anyway, if she believes he has seen her or not. She says that she just sort of stood there like the police say frozen in a fear type of state. But it appears that the police are phrasing that for her. It's not in quotes. They don't say in the police documents, Dylan said she was, they don't say Dylan said she was frozen in fear. And they don't say, Dylan said, quote, I was frozen in fear, quote, it is written as such that the police could have been paraphrasing what she said. Basically, though, the paraphrase is that she stood frozen. She didn't know what was going on. There's this man leaving the house. She describes him as having bushy eyebrows, being Caucasian, you know, being slightly athletic in build, but not muscular or anything like that. And well, she goes back to bed. This is very unusual to most people. Because if you don't know who this person is in your house and you've heard weird sounds, you would tend to think that this was an intruder. However, several factors have come into play before this. One, we've all just lived through two years of COVID at that time and people wearing masks all the time on their faces, right? And it was a very unusual time in the world and where, where masks have become more commonplace than any other time that we've lived through. So one, he's wearing a mask, but that's not necessarily that unusual. And two, this was a college party house, basically. Everything we've learned about this house, it indicates that there were people coming and going at all times, all the time. And it it not only was a party house for them, but it had been a party house in previous iterations. So this was a house 
near the university. And, and there are a lot of people who are in the Greek party system. I call it the party system, but it's basically there's a lot, lot of partying in Greek social life at, at the universities and the fraternity and sorority social life. And this was a house pretty close to, to all that. It sleeps six, which means off and on for years, there were probably 12 because you know most college students are dating somebody. There are parties going on and you know, uh, all, all people coming and going all the time. In fact, on multiple different occasions, three of them that I have, uh, and, and probably many, many more over the years, but three in the months prior to the night of the murders, police had showed up because it was a boisterous, loud scene. Neighbors were complaining. So there were all kinds of people that these residents were used to seeing. We can assume that she just chalked it up to that, or she was suffering from some traumatic response. And we don't know how people are going to respond to what their their sixth sense is telling them, what the lizard brain is telling them. She may have subconsciously understood something horrible had happened, but the trauma response was such that she basically closed the door and she went back to went back to bed. And nobody knew exactly what had happened until the survivors woke up in the morning. In fact, Bethany is said to have never gone and seen it, but Dylan is said to have seen what had happened after and they the the residents of the house that were survivors called other people to come help them through this moment with their friends in the morning and stuff we haven't talked about what happened but i'm just skipping to the fact that like it wasn't until about noon that the police actually showed up at the house so a full eight hours after the murders let's talk about what police discover at that crime scene tell us what they discover what they can determine immediately well, immediately, if we, we'll skip past what happened, we'll skip past the details, but basically Kaylee, Maddie, Zana, and Ethan were stabbed to death in the middle of the night. Sometime after four, we, we have a pretty good time frame of, of when we think it happened, but before 4.30, I mean, between four and 4.30, and it's even more spelled out like that in the book. It's just for the sake of your listeners, they were murdered, stabbed to death, and several, several hours later, Dylan Mortensen, and her peers, who she has called to the house to help her through whatever scene she has discovered, they call the police and the police show up. It's around noon and they very, I mean, very quickly, it's apparent. I mean, there's, there's blood everywhere in these areas where the students were killed. They find Kaylee and Maddie upstairs in the same bed together. It does not mean that they would have gone to bed together to sleep. We, we don't know what they were doing in the same bed, but it appears that they'd fallen into the same bed together after after a struggle and being murdered, right? Yes. Um, they could have been laying in the same bed together at that time. They could have jumped into the same bed together, you know, out of instinct to sort of get away from whatever was happening. We won't know it, exactly what they were doing there until after a trial. And presumably, uh, we, we may never know, but they were found in the same bed together, stabbed to death horrifically. One of them was stabbed what they call overkill. One was one was stabbed to right. a greater degree of viciousness and, um, than the other. And they found a knife sheath to a hunting knife or survival knife known as a K-bar knife. It's a Marine issue knife, K-A-B-A-R. And that's a very particular type of sheath. And they found that laying next to, to Maddie Mogan, not positioned next to her, on purpose, but as if it had been accidentally left behind. And they also then discovered Zana and Ethan in Zana's bedroom. Also, it appears in the doorway as well as in the bedroom, also brutal, brutally stabbed to death. You know, we're not talking a couple of a couple of sticks, you know, like 
like you see in a prison shanking where it's just boop, boop. You know, this was not like that with a knife. The coroner described it as hairs and gashes and um, just horrific violence. And they also, the police also discovered community surrounding that house suffering through immense shock and terror. The students who they first interviewed who had been on that scene were clearly traumatized by what had gone on. So that was, that was what basically what they discovered. They had no evidence at first other than this knife sheath, which is a big deal, but they didn't have any other indicators of anything else. Later, they found a latent footprint that they have included in their list of evidence. They later, weeks later, were able to pinpoint connections to, to DNA that was left on the knife sheet. So they have that evidence. And they have neighborhood security camera evidence showing a vehicle, what became popular immediately online and not popular, but um, the infamous white Hyundai that was splattered internationally in the media after they released that they had that footage of a Hyundai that they believed to be associated with the crimes. And they also had very troublingly so a neighbor's security like door cam picked up audio of the inside of the King Road house at the time of the murders. And that audio, it plays back some moaning sounds and what sounds as if a head were hitting the floor. The way, like it was described as a bowling ball hitting the floor, but that's basically what a head sounds like when it's dropped. I don't mean a detached head. I mean, when a person falls, that's what their head sounds like against the ground. You know, the head's a very heavy, solid thing. We don't think of that when we watch like boxing matches or MMA matches because they fall into, into canvas or in the octagon. But when a head hits a hard surface, and when a person falls, it makes a very strong thud. And that audio is picked up on a neighboring security camera. It's very troubling. But that also assisted them in pinpointing the time frame for the murders. So in the initial days, they had no clues as to why anybody would do this, who would do this, what it was. They didn't have anything. But little by little, the police were able to piece together evidence that pointed them toward this suspect, Brian Koberger. Let's talk about the incredible pressure. And you introduced Chief James Fry of Moscow Police Department, but he also immediately gets the state police involved, a person named Payne, and also the FBI. So tell us about this pressure, forcing him to do press conferences before he's ready. Tell us about the criticism and the pressure this Chief Fry faces. And all police. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a huge part of the book, because a huge part of the story is the interplay between the actual investigators on the scene, the small town of Moscow's police department, and the sort of social media frenzy that forced them into the, this small town into the limelight. This was never like a town that was used to public eyes on it. But the social media frenzy around this case drove traffic toward the, these murders in the media. And because of that, the mainstream media just kept reporting on this constantly. They're seeing their numbers skyrocket and dozens and dozens of out-of-state reporters flocked in with camera crews, hundreds of cyber sleuths flocked in, hundreds of thousands of cyber sleuths online were paying attention. Millions of people were clicking on every article that popped up. The media couldn't even keep up with the demand for content about this case because of that. They kept pressuring the police department to give them information. And Chief Fry, who is the chief of police of Moscow Police Department, 
was just bombarded with with media. I mean, you would have thought this was the most famous cop in America. For, you know, it was just insanity. And he was forced to have daily press, more almost daily press conferences. It seemed like he was forced. The Moscow Police Department website gave near daily updates on the progress of the case. There were social media sleuths starting to say, oh, Chief Fry and the Moscow Police Department are way over their head. They'll never handle this case. This should be taken over by the FBI because of that. The mainstream media was saying that. I mean, we had people reporting from CNN and Fox and NBC and wherever big, big media reports from questioning whether or not the Moscow Police Department could handle it. Well, in the meantime, it wasn't just the, the 37 member Moscow Police Department that was doing this. T. Fry was a smart guy. He immediately called him the Idaho State Police, which handles big, big, big murder cases like any other state in the country. Unfortunately, that's the society we live in. The Idaho State Police. And the FBI were called in. The FBI committed dozens of members to a task force to assist. So Chief Fry was not just podunk Chief Fry and as the, as the world saw him. I mean, he had all the resources of the, of the state police and the FBI assisting in this investigation. And he was forced to really walk a, a, a sort of tricky line between giving information just enough to the public so they'd stop bothering them, basically, and the police department so that they could do their work, asking for help from the that same public for leads and tips and hold on to the leads and tips that were substantive and not telling anybody about them. So when they, some six weeks later or whatever it was, when they arrested the suspect, Brian Koberger, it appears to have been out of the blue because Chief Fry and his team and Brett Payne under him did exactly what they were supposed to do as police which is hold on to the investigative details so that when they have substantive leads, they can follow those leads without A, scaring off a suspect, B, getting those leads diluted or those that information diluted somehow or changed or altered or twisted by the public. And so they can focus on what they do best, which is what they've been hired to do and what they've been trained to do their whole lives is solve crimes. What they were forced to do is act as a liaison between the insecurities and trauma and fears of a public and the details of the case in some ways. And, and that's not exactly what police are supposed to do. And, and I think they did it exactly right. They worked day and night tirelessly. They were photographed by, I mean, they were, they were, we're talking about a police department that had paparazzi camped outside its windows, right. you know, he's shooting photographs of them through the windows while they're working on this case. <laughs> while the scene was being processed, we had crime scene investigators in, in full hazmat suit and whatever with paparazzi shooting pictures of them through the windows of the of the house. Wow. I mean this was a this was a really stressful situation for police to work in and when what the world sees as backwoods north Idaho they pulled it off spectacularly and it's one of the focuses of the book a huge focus is the interplay between social media sleuthing the traditional police investigators and how we expect crime investigations to be played out in the future when you have YouTubers and podcasters and TikTokers diving into those crime scenes to get their next bit of content. Um, it becomes very complicated. On the one hand, shows like yours and writers like me, we bring to light stories that people should hear because otherwise those stories go without a voice. Right. On the other hand, there are people like some TikTokers were, were showing up at the crime scene to do TikTok dances in front of the crime scene. Um, oh. <laughs> and that's clearly gone too far, right? In terms of not only decorum, but in terms of getting away yeah of investigative processes. Uh, you and I are not putting on our, our best suits and shiny shoes and tap dancing in front of the door of a, of a murder scene. Right. Theoretically, we're telling stories that 
matter. But, but the tide is turning on that a little bit. And that's a very complicated place for police departments to be. Let's use this as an opportunity to stop for a second to hear these messages. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now let's get to this complex character and you have found out and relay all this information about Brian Kohlberger, his early life and background and up to his eventual arrest, like you say, six weeks later. But he is under surveillance as soon as he's a suspect by police. Tell us about Brian Kohlberger. Brian Koberger, the, the primary suspect, the person who's been arrested and charged with these murders, was a PhD student in criminology at nearby Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, right across the border from Idaho. It was not a far drive. I mean, we're talking about Moscow is, is practically at the border. So, right. you know, 10, 15 minutes away is a PhD student in criminology and, and a teaching assistant, a professor you could say, because he would run his own courses or run sections of his course in criminology as well, criminal justice and criminology. So a very unique character for being a suspect in this type of horrific murder. This is a guy who studies crime and he grew up in, in the Poconos in, in uh, Pennsylvania. He had somewhat troubled youth. He was an outsider in many other ways. He did not under, seem to understand how to interact with, with women young women when he was in, in a student. He was rejected often by the popular social classes. He studied, tried to study law enforcement when he was in high school. There was a tech school version of his school as well. And you could, you could take these tech school classes instead of your regular classes. He was studying law enforcement. He, one point, was a heroin addict. He, it seems like for a couple of years, he struggled with with heroin addiction. He made inappropriate remarks to a lot of people. He was insecure and lonely. Then he became physically fit after kicking heroin and or right around the same time. That's how he kicked heroin, I, I believe. But he became very physically fit. He became a runner. He, he was very heavy when he was younger. He lost like a hundred pounds or something like that while he was still in high school. So when, you, when you're in high school and you have the ability to, you have enough to lose that you can lose a hundred pounds. You were, you were a big boy and yes. he lost a hundred pounds and his attitude about the world changed. He became more hard edged, more dedicated, more focused about what he wanted in his life. He eventually graduated from college. It took him a while. He went to some local schools and he got his master's degree, his master's degree in criminology from DeSales University, where he studied briefly under a, a renowned professor yes. who had worked with BTK killer on a, on a book about the BTK killer and also many other books that she's written, just tons and tons of yes. writings, on serial killers and mass murderers. And Brian Koberger studied with her. He was said by one of his professors to have been brilliant. And he got into the PhD in criminology program at Washington State University and, and appeared to have turned his life around. He actually before starting at the university, he applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department, wanting to assist them in their, forgetting the terminology right now because it's not in front of me, but they're basically their 
their digital forensics. So he believed, at least we can assess that he believed that he knew quite a bit about digital forensics, how to track people online and things like that. Interestingly enough, it's digital forensics that led to his arrest. So if we believe that Brian Koberger was the perpetrator of these crimes, while he was supposedly an expert in crime, you know, getting a PhD in criminology and knowing a lot about digital forensics is the very opposite of what appears to have happened. He left behind what appears to be quite a trail of digital evidence. However, prior to that, he was, you know, he'd only done just a brief first semester. You know, his crimes occurred in November of Koberger's first semester as, in a, as a PhD student. And in that brief time, there were many complaints about him from some of his students from some of his peers, from other people on campus, or also after the fact, we learned that other that people on both campuses at WSU and at University of Idaho were, pre- quote, creeped out by him. He appeared to have a real strong problem with women. He made misogynist comments to the effect that women aren't as smart. He was very anti-LGBTQ. He, he was very upset by many things that did not fit his view of, of how the world should be. And many people associate him with that incel movement, which is involuntary celibacy, but which tend to be angry people. You don't call someone an incel. They have to identify as that to be that. It's like belonging to a club, you know. Um, He appeared to, though, be striking out with women all the time, to be angry with women, to be disassociated, to be suffering from his visual snow stuff, to, to just, things just kept getting worse and worse for him, even though he was physically fit. Now, slightly, you know, kind of a handsome guy when you look at him, just, you know, he looks like, you know, no, diff- no different than a, a version of a, of a John F. Kennedy Jr. or something. Great hair, good physique, chiseled jaw, but there was a, there was a strange stare in his eyes that everybody commented on. He was always sort of lurking and staring. And, you know, when the police arrested him over Christmas break, we didn't know any of this yet, but he had already been terminated from the university for cause. He had not been performing his duties as a as a instructor, and his funding for his PhD would have been tied to those duties as an instructor. So he was he had likely lost his funding as a PhD student, and he was on a downward spiral. He appeared to be doing great, but underneath it all, it was all falling apart on this guy. When they arrested him and in Pennsylvania, after tracing all this digital evidence they had on him. Then hundreds and hundreds of tips came in about him from all these other people who said, man, I had experiences with this guy. He creeped me out and this and that. And, and there were lots of lots of people calling in about him to the FBI and state police and the Moscow police. You were talking about him believing maybe that he was smart enough to cover his digital tracks. But you talk about the miracle that Moscow police received in terms of the cameras, the footage that of the white Hyundai Elantra, but also that he wasn't clever at all with his cell phone. Can you explain? Yeah. So the a white Hyundai Elantra uh, sedan was seen on video prowling in the neighborhood, let's call it, coming in and out of the neighborhood several times that night in the late hours, you know, right around the murders. I mean, we're talking from 3 a.m. until 4.30, let's say, I'm just roughly for the sake of your listeners, this car cruises in and out of the neighborhood three, four times. And then when it finally leaves the neighborhood, it leaves right after what, what has been assessed as the time of murders. And it speeds out of the neighborhood right after the time of the murders. And this is all caught on neighbor's security camera, which is an amazing stroke of luck. So one thing 
that Brian Koberger, if he, if he is the perpetrator, which, which it looks like he is, but one thing he should have assumed in that case, being a digital evidence type of expert, or even just a general student in criminology, or heck, even just somebody who watches TV, one thing he should have assumed is that there would be security cameras in the neighborhood. And if you're going to kill four people, you don't drive your own car. What the defense will probably argue as a side note is that that's evidence that he did do it because why would he have drove, driven his own car if he's a PhD student in criminology, right? So they'll probably argue the opposite, you know, for, argue that for opposite reasons. However, police get this footage of a white Hyundai sedan and they try and figure out who this belongs to. Well, it doesn't have a front license plate on it. So what the only license plate they can see is what they could have seen would have been the front, but it's not there. The rear license plate is it's too obscure in the footage. They don't have a license plate number. Eventually, police in Washington discover that in university housing for graduate students, there is this white Hyundai Elantra and, and they track it to Brian Koberger based on the plates because everybody's out looking for a Hyundai now. It takes weeks, but they track this to, they've got thousands and thousands of Hyundai Elantras to track. But one of them happens to be a criminology student in Washington state, right, right nearby. And then they, they also pull records from cell phones that utilized a tower that served the King Road residence. And Brian Koberger, his cell phone utilized the tower that, that services the King Road residence, not just in general, but at the time of the surrounding the murders, okay? Also, at least a dozen occasions previously. So they realized that, and I'm paraphrasing this for sake of quickness for your listeners, but it's a little bit more complicated, but they realized that Brian Koberger, his cell phone anyway, had often been in the uh, vicinity of the King Road residence, including on the night of the murders, and that a white Elantra belonged to him, which was also in the vicinity. Other video footage in the area from surveillance footage, security footage of, from other cameras, street cams, and nearby businesses and things like that, they were able to piece together that, yes, Brian Koberger's own white Hyundai Elantra was in that area. It wasn't just a random Hyundai. It, was, it appears to have been Brian Koberger's Hyundai Elantra and his cell in the area. So the defense could say, well, it wasn't Koberger. Somebody took his cell in his car. However, the DNA eventually matches to Brian Koberger, the DNA that's left behind in the knife sheath. So they have, in terms of evidence, they have the DNA that's left on the knife sheath beside Maddie Mogan, it's touch DNA, and then they have his cell phone and his vehicle in the vicinity. And another thing that they have, interestingly enough, we talk about what, what he asked originally, like, you know, if he's so smart, why, why wasn't he smart enough to leave his cell phone behind? We don't know the answer, but we do know that his cell phone was turned off at the exact time of the murders, and then later turned back on. But he does not have a pattern of turning off his cell phone at three in the morning, say, and turning it back on at five or 2.30 in the morning and turning it back on at five. That's not what Brian Koberger does based on his cell phone records. So he actually turned off the phone, but he only and but he brought it with him. So when the phone comes back on again, he's far away from the crime scene, but he's traveling. Well, first of all, he returns home his phone is on again. Then, but then later he's traveling with that phone to other locations south of the crime scene within an hour or so. And in a sense, it appears that he's probably going out there. If he's the doer, he's probably going out there to bear, get rid of evidence, get rid of the knife, which they have not found, get rid of clothing that he might've been wearing, things like that. But if he's the doer, then he wasn't smart enough to just leave his phone behind everywhere. Like his phone is basically giving them the GPS coordinates of everywhere he's not exactly the GPS coordinates, but 
more or less everywhere he's been in that period surrounding the murder. So they, they don't they don't have it on the GPS coordinates. They have it based on the um, pinging of cell towers. But it's just very it's very uh, complicated. It's spelled out very clearly in the book what is believed to have happened. But basically, this guy who claims to be a digital forensics type of specialist was captured through digital forensics. Right. Now, you talk briefly about the status of this case right now, but this is also potentially a death penalty case. And in the case of Idaho, is somewhat unusual. He would face a firing squad, potentially, wouldn't he? Yeah. One of the unusual things about the state of Idaho is that they have recently brought back the firing squad for the death penalty because of difficulty in obtaining chemicals needed for lethal injection. And I'm not a death penalty expert, but that's an unusual thing for a state to to allow the the firing squad. But if if Brian Koberger is found guilty in this death penalty case, it's very likely that with the current political climate and stances on criminal justice and in the state of Idaho that uh, he, he could face he could face death by firing squad eventually. That is something that the citizens of Idaho, many of them agree with in terms of the death penalty. And so that is something that, that might occur. This case now has been pushed out. It was slated to, to begin October 2nd. My book comes out October 3rd, but this case has been now pushed out indefinitely. And we won't know all of the, this sort of intimate details of how something happened or didn't happen. I should say this. We don't know that Brian Koberger did this until he's he's convicted, until all sure. the evidence, right? Sure. I, I bring him up in the story because he's the alleged perpetrator and he's oh, sure. he's who police mm-hmm. highlight in their in in all of their narratives and he's who sure. he's who's been charged, right? Yeah. So you have to talk about it. But theoretically the prosecution will lay out uh, much more evidence than what we know. Absolutely. And they only had to show him to arrest him. They only had to sh- make public a small amount of it. They could have five times as much on him and we just don't know it. Sure. Absolutely. Before I let you go, part of this book is also, I had mentioned, it's a, it's a remarkable tribute and an honor to these victims. Just interesting for people that will take this up and read this book is the memorials the vigils, and the very, very interesting posthumous diplomas that were handed to Kaylee and Maddie. Just before I let you go, tell us about that. Well, it's it's easy to get lost in the details of what we think happened and, and whatever, but at the end of the day, poor families are suffering through the most unimaginable thing that, that any, nobody likes to think of this. And it's, it's a horrific set of circumstances. And North Idaho was just the whole part of the state. I mean, the whole state, really, but but especially North Idaho. It's just a very traumatic experience to go through. And the communities rallied behind the families. They had multiple memorials. They were they were live streamed, watched by hundreds of thousands of people in the commencement ceremonies. That in spring, Kaylee was going to graduate in December, but they waited until spring. And the spring commencement ceremonies at the end were very emotional. And they presented posthumous degrees to Kaylee and Maddie and to their family. The family members accepted on their behalf. Ethan and Zana received certificates, some sort. They were not set to graduate yet. They were younger. But it's also important to note was that another young woman had had died during the school year. And yes. she received a posthumous degree as well. And her large family accepted on her behalf. She died of under other circumstances. And to me, it, it really 
seeing that, I mean, look, to be, to be murdered viciously is, is a horrific thing. And to suffer through that as a family is, a, is, is horrific. It's horrific. It's the stuff of nightmares. But then and we focused on that all year. Everybody did. Everybody focused on that all year. And then to suddenly realize that another young woman had died who also had hopes and dreams for her future and whose family also had raised her through that process of becoming an adult finally. It really strikes a chord. It really drives home the notion that none of us are forever and there's no way to promise forever to our loved ones. All we can do is live the life that we have in front of us day by day, hold on to it, promise our loved ones that they can do the same and try to get the most we can out of this, you know, this, this time we have here. And it's a, it's a really heartbreaking reminder that, you know, when these things happen, we, we never wish this on anybody nor on ourselves. Nor on, it's just, it's horrific, but they are a reminder to live hard, love as much as you can, and really enjoy the time you have here because none of us will be here a hundred years from now. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much, Jay Rubin Appleman, for talking about your latest While Idaho Slept, The Hunt for Answers and the Murders of Four College Students. For those people that might want to find out more about this book, While Idaho Slept, and more on this case, where can they go? Tell us. Well, the book is out everywhere. It'll be online, obviously, many places. It comes out October 3rd. It'll be, if you're a Walmart shopper, it'll be in Walmarts, it'll be in, it'll be in, um, Barnes and Noble, it'll be in your local bookstore, it'll, it'll be in some airports. Or you can just jump online and, and search for while I don't slept. You know, it's, it's anywhere people sell books online, it'll be available. Thank you so much, Jay Rubin Appleman. While Idaho slept, the hunt for answers in the murders of four college students. Thank you so much for this interview. And you have a great evening. Thanks, brother. I appreciate you. And good night.